second Timothy four. Let's go ahead and pray and then we will get started here. Heavenly Father, good to be here. Just uh, good to hear everybody just having that time of fellowship, Lord. And I just praise you for the beautiful day today, a day to come just to focus on you, to worship you, to learn of you, to grow in you. But Lord, most importantly, as we leave today, to go out and be lights and witnesses in all we do and always say, as always, you teach, we listen. In your name, amen. Real quick addition to the announcements. Uh, one of the things that we've really been praying about here lately is one of the ideas of trying to get out into the community. You know, we've been talking about this idea of knowing who God is, growing in that relationship with Christ, and then being sent out to go do stuff. An opportunity coming up this Saturday, if you are interested, over in the Deschler area, uh, we have a little community service project we're going to do to help out a family over there. And that's going to be 11 o'clock, 11 o'clock over in Deschler. If you're interested in that, see Pastor Rich for details. He'll fill you in on what we're doing. He'll fill you in on what's going on. So let's kind of pray about that Saturday, 11 o'clock, over in Deschler. And uh, once again, if you're interested in that, see Pastor Rich. He can give you some details on what that is. Alrighty, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Not going to finish up the book yet today. Going to do the first uh, eight verses here today, and then hopefully, Lord willing, time willing, we'll finish it up last, next, excuse me, next week. Now, what we have here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, as you've heard us talk about this many times before, this is the final book that Paul wrote. Paul is writing this from the cell of the uh, Roman Empire awaiting execution. And he knows his death is imminent. He knows that it's coming. And these are the final words he wants to say to his spiritual son, Timothy, on what it means to be a believer, to walk in the faith, to be in leadership. And as we get down now, not only to the final words, we're down to the final chapter, to the final verses of what we have recorded for Paul that he had in this lifetime. We're going to do things a bit differently this morning. We're going to start out in verses 6 through 8, which sets the scene for this chapter. Then we're going to go back to verse 1 and pick it up. So verse 6 For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's departure is at hand. This is the final moments. Now, your departure is coming too. We're all going to depart. When and how, that we don't know. But we know it's going to happen. And once again, we're down to these final thoughts. Now, this is obviously spirit-led, but the Lord is using Paul's personality here. And you see his care and concern for Timothy and his desire to make sure Timothy is grounded in this truth before his departure. So what does it mean that he's being poured out as a drink offering there in verse 6? This is interesting there, this idea of drink offering. It goes back to Genesis 35. That was the first drink offering in the Bible. Isaac did it. He had an altar, and what they would do is take a cup, probably of wine, and they would pour it out. Now, this is also used in other uh, sacrifices as well as in Exodus and also Leviticus as part of the offering. It's a picture of your life being poured out, if you will. In Isaiah 53, it's kind of talked with Jesus that he poured out his soul. I mean, if I had this, my cup of water right here and I take this and I dump this on the carpet, there's no way I'm getting that water back in that cup. It has been poured out. Paul is saying, my life now has been poured out. My departure is at hand. It's time for me to go. And what he says in verse 7, he's fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. I love that verse. If I'm ever doing a funeral and you just had this you know, saint of a person that was just this godly man or woman, what a great verse to end that funeral on is just to stop and say, listen to their lives. They fought the good fight. They finished the race. They kept the faith. What a statement to say at the end. Let's break this down. He fought the good fight. 
We forget that this world is a battle. Every day you're battling. And so this is why God said in Ephesians 6, we're supposed to have armor. Because you're going into a battle. It always surprises me as believers when we forget that this is a battle. We wonder why work is so hard. We wonder why life is so hard. We wonder why marriage is so hard. Because it's a battle. And the enemy is fighting against us. Now here's the thing. If you're like me in your typical day, you have many different battles that you can choose from. You have a lot of battles you can choose to fight. Make sure you fight the right ones. Some battles are not worth fighting over in any way whatsoever. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 2, verse 23. He says, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Choose the right battle to fight. You know, one of the things I'm always telling the boys is when they have a disagreement going on, we stop and say, okay, guys, in the whole scheme of heaven and hell, does this really matter? Does this really matter? A lot of things that we get worked up in life, or a lot of the fights and arguments we have, they carry no eternal ramifications or consequences, but yet we allow it to dictate our life down here. Now listen, you're going to fight. That's, that's part of this Christian walk, is you fight for truth, you fight for what's right, you fight for Jesus Christ. But make sure, number one, you're armored up, Ephesians 6. Don't go into battle on your own. And number two, make sure you're choosing the right battle to fight. Make sure you're prayed up and ready to know which one it is. Next one, it's a race. I have finished the race. Paul always uses this analogy of this idea of a race. God has a race for you. Make sure you run your own personal race. Don't try to run someone else's race. It won't work for you. Run your race. God has a race for you. I remember when I first got saved, there were so many different people I looked up to spiritually, and I was going to run their race. You can't do that. God has a race set specifically for you. You need to make sure you run your race that the Lord has given you. If you try to run someone else's race, you can do it for a while, but eventually it doesn't work out. I remember it was just a couple years ago, um, Renee and I were running a a turkey trot, four-mile race on Thanksgiving Day. So we all lined up, and we're getting ready to go. Now we line up in the back because we're not that fast, and we're not going to be at the front. So we're lined up in the back. And the race starts, and I take off. I'm feeling real good. I'm feeling real good. Probably about three-quarters of a mile of the race. And I'm looking around me at the people I'm running with. And they look like runners. Because you can tell when someone looks like a runner, right? They have the right gear. They have the right everything. They look like runners. And I thought, this is going pretty good. About three-quarters of a mile into it. All of a sudden, on my right, here comes Renee. He's running now beside me. I was even faster than Renee. Now, that's a big deal because Renee's like a real runner. I mean, like, okay, Renee goes out and runs the half marathons. He really runs. So we're running beside each other now. Now, if you've ever run a race before, you know you really don't talk. So he's not running beside me. He looks at me and goes, hey. I said, hey. That's our communication. He goes, uh, you got a good pace going. I said, I, I, I do, don't I? Because you know how fast you're going. I said, nope. And and now he's got all the technology, too, because he's a real runner. Um, He goes, you're doing like six-minute miles. Well, that's not good. Um, (laughs) That's not my race. That is not my... That's why they look like runners around me, because they could do that. I immediately put the brakes on, and I just went back to the back, where I'm supposed to be, where I'm walking with old women, you know, with canes, you know? (laughs) I have to run my race. If I would try to run that race, I can do it for a while. I can keep up for a while. Eventually, I'm going to get burned out. And the same thing happens in life. If you try to run a race that's not your own, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And you're going to get burned out. It's not your race. Now, how do you know what your race is? 
That's between you and the Lord. I really wish, and I mean this sincerely, that I could tell you what your race is, what your ministry is. I, I can't. Because that's between you and the Lord. The Lord has a race that is set for you, and he's asked you to run your personal race. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And the last one, I have kept the faith. See, if he says he can keep the faith, that seems to be alluding that it's hard sometimes to have faith, right? Now, we know the disciples struggled with this because in Luke 17, they said, Lord, increase our faith. They were struggling. They needed more faith. And Jesus' response? Just have the faith of a mustard seed. This tiny little seed, if you've ever seen a mustard seed. Jesus is saying, listen, I don't need the biggest, I don't need the strongest, I don't need the wisest. He goes, I just need somebody with the tiniest little bit of faith to say that they trust me. And that's what the Lord's looking for. And maybe right now you came in here this morning and your faith is the faith of a mustard seed. Amen. God can work with that. So Paul, at the end of his life, he fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. And what is the result of this? Verse 8, he gets a crown. Now there's two crowns mentioned in the Bible. One crown is the crown of a ruler, of a leader, like a king or a queen. That's not what this crown is. This is the crown of victory. He won. Now, that is not to imply that the Christian walk or the Christian race is a competition. No, because we know where does the victory come from. 1 Corinthians 15 says that we have victory in Jesus. So when we sing that song, your victory comes through Christ and Christ alone. So therefore, that is how you receive the crown. So does this mean for all of eternity I get to wear this crown around pridefully? Well, I don't know for sure what's going to happen for all of eternity, but I know in the book of Revelation, the elders lay their crowns down at the throne of God. Because they stop and realize this is not a crown that they have earned or deserved. It's a crown that was given to them through the victory that they had in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. So when they come to all of eternity, they say, no, these crowns are not ours. They're the Lord's. And they lay them down at the throne of God. Now, the neat thing about this crown is, guess what? We get one too. Look at the end of verse 8. He will give to me on that day and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We get a crown of victory in Christ. Why? Because we look and love for the returning of Jesus Christ. Amen. This crown is not earned or deserved. This crown is through Christ and Christ alone through the victory we have. So when you see Paul's paragraph here, if you will, he says, listen, Timothy, I'm poured out as a drink offering. I know my departure is at hand, but guess what? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. I've received the crown that I know I'm going to have. And Timothy, you can have the same crown too. These are Paul's final words. Now with that mindset, with that idea here that the end is coming, what does he want to say to Timothy? Jump back to verse 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearance and at his kingdom. Stop right there for a second. I charge you therefore. This word is a very powerful word. It's very a solemn word. It's very serious. You know, if I'm getting ready to leave for the day, can I call the boys over and I say, Hey guys, I'm getting ready to go here out to church. Hey, if you find some time today, when you get done with school and you're done playing your games, if you guys could go down to the basement and pick it up for me, I really would appreciate that. I'm not really charging them to do that. I'm really not being serious. I'm suggesting, I'm asking, would you please? Now, before I leave, if I call the boys around and say, Now guys, listen, the most important thing today is getting that basement picked up. That is your focus. That is your goal. And when I get home from church, I love you guys, but the first thing I'm going to do is go downstairs and make sure that basement is picked up. That's charging them. 
That's making it serious. They understand the seriousness of what I'm asking them. So what Paul is saying here to Timothy, if Timothy was reading this book, or reading this scroll, I should say, when he got to that first verse, he would stop and say, okay, this is important. This is the big deal. This is the buildup. Paul, what do you want me to do? The answer, verse 2, preach the word. That's all. Preach the word. That's, that's not real deep. I mean, to be honest, that doesn't even sound real powerful. Just preach the word. I mean, as believers, we all know we're supposed to be in God's word, right? This is how serious, through the Spirit, Paul wanted to make this clear. Preach the word. What's one of the most important things you can do with your family? Be in the word with them. What's one of the most important things you can do as an individual? Be in the word. Most important thing we can do as a church? Be in the word. That's the solemn charge that Paul gave Timothy. We're supposed to preach the word. Now, what does the word preach mean? If somebody comes up to you and says, this guy was preaching at you, it usually doesn't carry a very good connotation. When someone's preaching at you, it sounds like they're belittling you. They're kind of putting you down a little bit. That's not what the word preach means. The word preach literally means to herald or proclaim. So when we preach, we're just going to proclaim God's word and who Jesus Christ is. That's what we want to preach. And this is an ongoing theme that Paul has had in this book. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The focus is on God's word. Chapter 3, verse 15. That from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete... Thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's Paul's emphasis to Timothy. Preach the word. See, this is what we run into in society today. There's a lot of churches that say, yeah, that's our focus. We're really going to preach the word. But really what happens is it becomes more of this, how can we entertain? How can we make them come back? The focus is just supposed to be on presenting God's word. That is our responsibility to do. Because as we present God's word, that's how the Lord moves and works. You know what happens at the preaching of God's word? According to Romans, our faith increases. Faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. According to the book of Hebrews, when we're in the word of God, it cuts. It gets right to where it needs to be. God's word is a surgical tool that goes in there and convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment through the Holy Spirit. God's word is what made their hearts burn with passion, according to the book of Luke. Preach the word. How are we supposed to do it? Be ready in season and out of season. All times, all situations, be ready. That is tough to do. All times, all situations, be ready for whatever God has in store. That is so tough. And sometimes we don't see the situation as it's happening. Just even earlier this week, you know, we're going through Jonah for small groups. And so Dawn uh, suggested to the older boys, hey, why don't you read through Jonah, kind of prepare some stuff, so that way, you know, if some of the kids come over to the small group study, you can talk to them a little bit about Jonah. So Elias and Judah are reading through Jonah. We're sitting in our living room. And as they're reading through Jonah, I have my phone out. Uh, someone texted about something. And so I'm kind of responding to that. So as I'm trying to text, I'm a typical guy. I can do one thing at one time. So if I'm texting, that, that, that my whole world is revolving around that. So they're reading through Jonah. All of a sudden, Elias goes, hey, Dad. What? What's casting lots? You know, because in the book of Jonah, chapter 1, they were casting lots. Okay, and I'm trying to answer. 
And then, hey, Dad, where's, where's Tarshish at? And I'm getting annoyed because this text is the most important thing in the world. And at that brief moment, the Lord kind of convicted me saying, your boys are sitting there asking you Bible questions. Isn't that the most important thing in the world at that time? Be ready in season now. But we get so focused, right, on that one thing. Boy, there's so many stories I could tell you over the years, of the 16 years I've been out here as a pastor. But the one I'll just share real quick. This is before we had kids. It was a Monday, and Dawn and I were getting ready to go to a pastor's conference. And we were babysitting for a family out here at church. So we were getting ready to go. We had to take off for the pastor's conference, and we were over at this family's house watching their kids. And I said, i got to run out to church real quick. Just do a couple things before we leave for the pastor's conference. Dawn tells me, when you go out to church, do not answer the phone and do not call anybody. Those are her two rules. Do not answer the phone and do not call anybody. Go, grab what you need, and come right back. Because we're babysitting and we have to leave for the pastor's conference. So I come out to church. I grab my stuff. And all of a sudden, there's a gal that's really heavy on the heart. Now I think I should call her. So now I have the creator of the universe that's told me to call this gal. And then I have Dawn. That I don't, she didn't create anything, but I got to live with her. So I'm trying to decide, what do I do? So I feel like I need to call this gal. So I call this gal and I said, hey, you're really heavy on the heart. Anything going on that I can pray for? And she goes, I'm so glad you're called. She goes, my husband just left me. And the marriage was over. And it was just like, and I knew that's what I was supposed to do. At that moment, ready in season and out of season. It wasn't the best time. It wasn't the best plan. But the Lord said, you got to be ready. And it happens all the time. Friday, we decided we were going to go out to eat as a family, all seven of us. First time we've ever done that. So someone had given us a a gift card to Cracker Barrel, so we're going to go to Cracker Barrel. So we got done with school. We go to Cracker Barrel. It's Friday afternoon. We walk into Cracker Barrel. Cracker Barrel, and they put us in the back booth, which is really good. I mean, they must have realized what was going on. We're in this back table. My whole focus is just get through the meal. No spills. No one falls in the fire, you know. Um, No one breaks anything in that store. They make you walk through the store before you can get nothing. Just get through the meal. That's my whole focus. You know, before we get in, it's like, okay, boys, this is why we practice sitting time. You know, we practice sitting time at home. We're going out. So we go, and we're there. And so the waitress comes over. Now, we have to stop here real quick. I I had a pastor friend through the... I heard through somebody that this is what he used to do, and it really always hit me that before that they would eat... Um, if they were going out to eat, they would always ask the waitress before they would pray, is there anything that we can pray for? Just an opportunity to witness. And that's something that I've kind of picked up, is if we're going someplace and the Lord opens a door, hey, waitress, waiter, is there anything we can pray for you before we eat? Now, I'm not even thinking about that at this time. I just want my kids to survive. I just want to survive. You have no idea. The waitress comes over, and of all things, her name is Genesis. Genesis. Now, in season and out of season, I just want to survive. But how can you ignore a name like Genesis? So I said, Genesis, that's, that's quite the name. I said, are you the firstborn? She goes, no, she was the first girl. And I said, you know, any siblings after you or girl? She goes, yeah. So I said, did they name them Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers? You know? <laughs> she didn't find that funny. I found that kind of funny, but she didn't find that funny. So... Our, our wait, waitress's name is Genesis. I mean, obviously, we need to do this, right? So we're getting ready to eat, and she comes over again, and I said, hey, we're getting ready to pray before we eat. Is there anything we can pray for you about? So she said, yeah. She said, you can pray for this. 
And then we're getting ready to go now. She comes back over again, and she stops us. She goes, I just want to let you know how much that meant to us, you know, it meant to me that you would ask to pray, and I really needed that. I appreciated that. In season and out of season. I just wanted to survive. And God says there's an opportunity. And it reminds me of the story I've shared with you so many times before that uh, Pastor John Corson has shared, but it bears repeating every time this comes up. He always tells the story of when he was with one of his sons that has been a long day of ministry, and they ran into the supermarket, the quick trip, grabbed the loaf of bread, grabbed the milk, and get out. And as they're going into the supermarket, they're tired, they're ready, they want to go home. He runs into a gal from church, and right there in the middle of the aisle, he has the impromptu marriage counseling with the gal, They go grab the milk and bread, and then they leave. His son comes up to him afterwards and says, Dad, you were tired. You wanted to go, but yet you stopped. You did the 15, 20 minutes. He goes, was that a put-on? Were you being fake? And John Corson tells the story. He goes, yeah, it was a put-on. I put on Jesus Christ. He goes, I didn't want to do that. But I put on Jesus because that's the right thing to do. And that's what happens a lot of being ready in season and out of season. I'm telling you right now, sometimes your best opportunities for ministry are the most inconvenient that you can ever imagine. It does not line up with your daily schedule. It does not line up with your life schedule. It does not line up with anything. Be ready in season and out of season. How else are we supposed to preach? Verse 2, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. This word convince is a really interesting word. Some of your translations say reprove. Some of your translations say correct. But it's not the word correct that we used back in verse 16 in chapter 3. This word correct is a very unique word. When this word is used, it carries a bit of shame. Use God's word, it says. As you correct somebody, it may shame them. Now be careful, don't take that too far. This is not you use this to shame people. The point is that when you're talking to someone, you say, hey, listen, God's word says this is wrong. These actions you're doing are wrong. And you know what? You should be ashamed of yourself because you know better. That's the idea of it's carrying. That's a powerful word. This idea of I'm going to tell you what you're doing is wrong. I love you enough to tell you, but also it's going to make you feel bad because what you're doing is so stupid and so ignorant that you should know better. That's what that word is trying to say. Now, if you're trying to grow a church, don't do that. That's the dumbest thing you can do. But when you preach the word, there's sometimes you do that. There's sometimes you go up to people and you say, listen, man, I love you, but this has been going on long enough. How long are you going to keep making these dumb choices? You know this is not what God wants you to do. That's what that word is saying. Some people accept that. Some people go find a different church. But God's word says sometimes we need to say it. What about the next one? Rebuke. Rebuke means to find fault with. Rebuke means I know you, I love you, but I'm looking at your life, and there's areas in your life right now that are not lining up with Scripture, and that's going to hurt you, your wife, your husband, your family, your kids, your witness. You need to stop. Once again, if you're trying to grow a church, don't rebuke people, right? But God's word says that's what we're supposed to do. What about the last one? Exhort. Finally, encourage. Literally means call to one side to do it together. Encourage is, listen, I know things are struggling in your life. Hey, can I take you out to eat this week? I just want to be with you. I want to encourage you. Hey, can I send you some scriptures? Hey, can I pray with you? Hey, why don't you come to study with me? Or do you care if I just lay hands on you and pray for you real quick? I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. What a great ministry that is. Just a real quick plug from what Renee was talking about with announcements. Ladies, the Aaron and her prayer ministry tomorrow. Great opportunity to come together and be encouraged. Now, here's the problem. 
we have convince, rebuke, exhort. Three distinct words, three different ways to use it. Now, I've run into some believers that they're really good at the convince part. Boy, they can shame anybody. I've run into some that are really good at rebuke. They can find fault with anybody and everything. It's hard to find someone who's got the exhortation down. But when you really preach the word, you have all three. You have all three, and you know when to use each one. You know when to use each one. Now, we've all messed up on it. There's times where I should have convinced or rebuked, and I exhorted. There's times when I should have exhorted, and I convinced, and I rebuked. Lord, give us wisdom. Lord, give us guidance. Because each one is unique. Pastor Sandy Adams said this one time, and I really appreciate what he said. He said, a pat on the back versus a kick in the pants. There's only a difference of about 12 inches, but they can have drastically different results. There's a lot of truth to that. Do you run into some believers that need a pat on the back? They need encouragement, exhortation. I'm with you, brother. Let me help you. You run into some believers that need convinced and rebuked. They may not want to hear it, but that's where the Lord is leading to do it. How else are we supposed to do this? Verse 2, with all long suffering and teaching. You do this with patience and teaching. You've got to have patience. If you don't have patience... You know, the flesh comes out. As I mentioned to you last week, you know, as a pastor, sometimes we run into this thing of where we do more whipping than equipping. We lose patience. Boy, that's wrong. We need to stay focused on having the patience of Christ. And also, we do it with teaching. This is not my opinion. It's what God's Word says. See, I can't go out and rebuke people for what I just feel wrong. I need to rebuke them according to the Word of God. If I need to go out and correct somebody, I have to correct them according to the Word of God. If I'm going to encourage somebody, they better be encouraging them in the Word of God. So it's all done with patience and teaching. And it's important to know the balance and let the Spirit lead. If you want the best example of that, look at the life of Jesus. You know, the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Well, shouldn't she have been convicted and rebuked? Woman at the well, I'm the water of life. The Pharisees, you guys are sons of hell. You know, he knew when to use it and when not to use it. What a great example that is for us to know the same thing. Lord, when are we supposed to use that and when are we not supposed to use that? Because there's times for each one. Now, why do we need to be able to convince and rebuke and exhort? Well, the answer is found there in verses 3 and 4. And I'm going to read this for you real quick out of the New Living Translation because I think this does a better job here of trying to explain it. Why do we need to convince, rebuke, and exhort? For time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Boy, isn't that the truth? We want to listen to what we want to listen to. You know, um, before we had the 830 service years ago, you know, I'd get up on Sunday mornings and you got time to kill. Church doesn't start till 10. So I remember there was this one teacher I always used to listen to. And the reason I used to listen to him on TV is because it was like watching a train wreck. You never knew what he was going to say. If I would write in, he would send me a coin that had a passage in Deuteronomy. And it was the power to get wealthy coin. And I could carry that coin in my pocket. And I was supposed to rub that coin throughout the day. And that was my power to get wealthy coin. Now, why would I want to listen to him? Wouldn't that be the greatest? I mean, seriously, if you have these different teachers set in front of you, which one are you going to pick? Well, I want the teacher that tells me I can be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's the one I want, right? So what happens is, that's who we listen to. Our itching ears take us to that doctrine, because that's what sounds good. If I take my boys and I set before them a Snickers bar or green beans, boys, you choose. 
They're going after Snickers bar every time. A lot of times that's what we do spiritually. My itching ears want to hear that. So I go to the teachers that make me feel good. Once again, how do you grow a church? Just mention God's love. Don't mention anything about sin. Talk about heaven. Talk about how much he wants to bless you. Well, when you preach the word, though, according to verse 2, there's going to be convincing, rebuking, and exhorting. And as we get closer and closer here to the end, what are you going to see in verses 3 and 4? You're going to see ministries that have those messages that, why would I not want to go there? That just makes me feel good. Listen, I want to encourage you. I love you. But part of also encouraging you is also encouraging you to go deeper. And part of going deeper is sometimes there's areas in our life that have to be worked on. When the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When I work out, I shouldn't say when, if I would work out, (laughs) it's not that I'm creating new muscles. I'm taking the muscles that are there and hopefully strengthening them. Well, that hurts. (laughs) You know, that's why we don't do it sometimes. Same thing spiritually. When you work out your salvation, you're not creating salvation. No, no, no. Salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. But when you are saved, you're taking the salvation as there, and you're hopefully strengthening your walk and your relationship with Christ. Sometimes that means hearing things and doing things that we really don't want to hear or do. Paul sums it up even like this. Look at verse 5. You be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That idea there of be watchful, that literally means keep your head clear. Keep your mind clear, sober, calm, collected. You, you understand life is throwing a lot of stuff at you. And you understand that a lot of that stuff doesn't matter. So I keep my mind clear, my head clear, and I'm focused. So therefore, when the things of this world come into my life, they truly do grow strangely dim. Because they don't matter anymore. My eyes are on Christ. Look at our lives most of the time when we're upset, bothered, or fighting, or frustrated. Why? It's because we're allowing the things of this world to dictate our joy. We're supposed to be watchful, calm, clear, collected on the prize, which is Christ Jesus. The next one, we're supposed to endure afflictions. You're going to have trouble in this life. You're going to struggle physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. There are afflictions in this cursed, fallen world. This is an ongoing theme here. And 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, you don't need to turn there. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Paul talks about the sufferings of being in Christ. We will suffer being a part of a believer in a fallen world. We're supposed to endure afflictions. How do we endure afflictions? Well, the answer is found in James 5. If you're a note taker, you can write it down. It's James 5, verse 13. James 5, verse 13 says, If anyone is suffering, let him pray. That word suffering is the same word for what which we just read right there in uh, verse 5. What is the answer to suffering? Prayer. Now that sounds too easy, doesn't it? Right? Just pray. What does prayer do? See, we often misunderstand prayer. Prayer is not about changing the situation. It's about changing you. So you have difficulties, let's say, at work. You have a bunch of coworkers that are tough, difficult to be around. Lord, give me new coworkers. Lord, give me a new job. Jesus may say, no, I want you to stay there and I'm going to change the way you deal with your co-workers. Lord, I'm really struggling with this physical pain. Lord, heal me, take care of it. 
Well, I'm going to give you the strength to get through the pain as part of the witness. See, prayer doesn't necessarily change the situation. It may change how you deal with the situation. So that's why when it says that when we're suffering, we're supposed to pray, Lord, give me a heart to endure through this in you. The situation may change, amen, or you may change my heart towards the situation. Some of you may have come up and said, listen, I've been struggling with stuff and I keep praying and praying and praying and nothing is changing. Maybe the Lord is saying, I want to change your heart on how you deal with it. Enduring afflictions. The next one, do the works of an evangelist. You know, so often we've come to this conclusion, we've talked about this before, that we've reached a point as a society where there's a select group of people that it's their responsibility to go tell people about Jesus Christ. No, we're all called to spread the gospel of Christ and all that we do and all that we say in whatever way God has called you. Do the work of evangelists. That is why we're here is to give God the glory for who He is and what He has done in our lives and He's created us. And part of giving Him that glory is I want to proclaim, I want to preach about what Jesus has done in my life. I get to tell people about Christ. That's amazing. God has blessed me and He's given me that responsibility just like He's given you that we get to do that. And that's part of the end of verse 5. Fulfill your ministry. You have a ministry. I have a ministry. We're all ministers. Now, are we fulfilling it? Your first question may be, I don't know what my ministry is. As I mentioned to you earlier in the message, I, I wish I could tell you what your ministry was, but that's between you and the Lord. Because I wish I could puzzle piece people into certain ministries. It'd be great as a pastor to say, you're looking for a ministry? Hey, i got an open spot right here. I don't care if you're called. Just take the spot, please. No. I want you to fulfill the ministry God has given you. And maybe that's your focus for this week is through prayer and fasting and the word. Lord, what have you called me to do? You know, a lot of times there'll be situations out here at church where we need some help in certain areas. We're looking for someone to head up a ministry and someone will say maybe, hey, why don't we just announce it to the church? Because when you announce it, you you never know who you're going to get or what you're going to get. What we have learned over the years is this. Okay, Lord, we really want somebody to be raised up to help in this area. Lord, we're going to start praying for that person to be raised up and stirred. Then you hope that that person individually is saying, Lord, where do you want to use me? Then all of a sudden you have a conversation like this, and I love it when it happens. They come up after church and say, hey, James, I've just been praying about where to get involved in. You know, this was kind of on the heart. And I was like, well, that's what we've been praying for for months. You know, go take a week, confirm it in the Lord, and then let's start this thing. You know, as a board, we started a couple months ago praying for certain things. You know, just, you know, Lord, raise up somebody to help with this area. Somebody with a heart for marriages. Somebody with a heart for widows and, and needs ministry and local missions and missions beyond that. And Lord, just raise up these people. And I sent out an email to us from the small group leaders here that are teaching, saying, hey, at your small groups, just pray for this. Because the Lord would raise these people up. And then when they feel led and we've been praying for it, you put these puzzle pieces together. And it's like, wow, Lord, that's where it's supposed to be. Then, therefore, the ministry can be fulfilled. That word fulfilled means to carry it out to completion. Not partially, the whole way. If I ask my boys to burn trash, the idea is collect it, take it out to the burn barrel, set it on fire, and don't get burned and get out of the way. If they take the trash and they collect it, and they take it halfway out and they leave it in the middle of my yard, they did not fulfill their ministry. Yes, they put effort into it. Yes, they worked at it. And I appreciate that. But they did not Fulfill it. See, and I, and I struggle with that. Because I'm the type of guy, my personality is, oh, you tried. Thanks. Don's personality is, until you complete it, you don't even get a pat on the back. And I struggled with that. Because there'd be times in our life, in our marriage, where I would do something, and I did a lot of effort. I didn't finish it. It's like, honey, look. 
It's not done. That's the first thing you say is it's not done. It's not fulfilled. And you know what? I hate to admit it. She's right. Until it's done, it's not done. Can you imagine Christ carrying the cross to Calvary and getting to Calvary saying, all right, I carried it. I'm done. No. Fulfilled. He fulfilled the ministry God gave him. Rich and I both enjoy baseball a lot, and we use a lot of baseball analogies when we're talking out here. And sometimes when we're talking about ministries and stuff, we'll talk about how people are starters but not closers. They'll start. They'll start a ministry. It'll be great. It'll be amazing. And as you know, a baseball game is nine innings, and they're a powerful starter in ministry, and they'll go a good five, six innings, and then they'll quit. We need someone to complete the game. So we have starters, but they're not closing. And I'm thankful that we have closers that we can say, okay, can we bring this person in out of the bullpen? And they can help finish the ministry and finish the game. But what you're really looking for is that person to fulfill the ministry. That's what you want, is to take it to completion. Not just start it, not just kind of be interested in it, and not just try it for a while. But through the Spirit, say, I'm going to fulfill what God has given me. You know what happens when you try to fulfill your ministry? Life gets crazy. All of a sudden, everything will be free and easy. Oh, Lord, you've given me a season where I can get involved. I'm now going to sign up for this. And then life will get crazy. Because the enemy knows. What did Jesus say in the parable of the sower and the seed? It's the cares of this world that choke us out. That's exactly what happens in life and ministry. The cares of this world choke us out. So that's why Paul says to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Don't stop, don't quit, finish this. Now put this all together here, starting in verse 6. Paul says, my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight, I finished the race that God gave me, I kept the faith. I'm going to receive the crown, and Timothy, you can receive that crown too. And then he goes back to verse 1. Timothy, here's my big command, here's my main, I'm charging you this, pay attention. Preach the word, Timothy. That's what it's all about, preaching the word. Anytime, anywhere, in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort. Don't be afraid to get in people's lives and say, I love you, but you're wrong. Don't be afraid to do that. Encourage them also with patience and teaching. Because why in this world we live in, there's going to be a lot of falseness out there. There's a lot of what I call cotton candy Christianity. It sounds good, it tastes good, but there's no growth in it in any way whatsoever. But he says, Timothy, you, even though the world's falling apart, verse 5, watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. What we'll get into next week is Paul's personal ending. And you know when we went through Romans just a few months ago, I love the personal endings to these books. When you see through the Spirit Paul's personality coming out and these people that he name drops and just the relationships he has with them. So we're going to pick that up in next week in verse 9. Marv, if you can come forward here for the final song. Hey, let's pray this message into our lives. Lord, thank you for the people that you brought out today. And I just pray that, Lord, we could do exactly what your word says. Endure afflictions, preach the word, fulfill the ministry you've given us. And, Lord, if there's someone here today that that has that burning desire, they want to do something, reveal to them what their race is. Reveal to them what their ministry is. And, Lord, I pray you would raise up those people to lead those ministries. Because, Lord, it's, it's not about us. It's about you. We want to know you, grow in you, and then go out and do something for you through your power, through your spirit, and all that we say and do. Lots of things going on, and they mean nothing without you. The small group studies, we ask for your blessing. 
the Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes, the potluck coming up, the Aaron and her, Lord, all these things, nothing without you. We don't want to be busy, Lord, just to be busy. We want to be busy about our Father's business. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. We lift this up in your name. Amen. Don't forget if you're...